Today we'll be in 1 Corinthians 11, 18, 19, all the way through 33. We were trying to do radio on this for critical issues commentary, and the first time the sounds recording didn't work, and the next time the carbon monoxide detector went off in uh, Jessica's home, and so I thought, I think I better preach on this and make sure we understand it, and then we'll do radio on it. So it's been a long uh, time of studying the Greek, the issues, the relationships of the words. And so today, it's my honor to preach about that, 1 Corinthians 11, 18, and 19. The main thing you need to know about this is that as Paul lays out the institution of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, it's in the context of what's already happened throughout this epistle. And the reference is to Luke. I want you to understand it's to Luke. Luke, and his wording is very much behind what happens here in 1 Corinthians, and we'll allude to that. So let me read the first two verses. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it, Paul said. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Now, there's some key words here in the Greek that are very common for God's purposes. You see, day, for example, must, is a, in this context, I believe, is a divine necessity. We see that in Luke, we see that in Acts. Remember, the issues in 1 Corinthians echo what happened in Luke-Acts. Luke was an eyewitness of what happened in Acts. And so Apollos is mentioned early in 1 Corinthians. Peter, we also see in 1 Corinthians. And the divisions, I am of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos. Is Christ divided? And then throughout the book, we'll see this, the issue is divisions. And these divisions, Paul says, are there so that what's approved will be evident and what isn't will also be shown. The the word for division, schismata, approved is a word that we'll talk more about, dakamas, and it, it means to put something to a test in this context. There's also a verb of that, dokimazo, and if you were going to buy gold or silver or a diamond or whatever, you'd want to put to the test so that you're getting the real thing. So one of the things that has become evident in studying the passages is that whenever there is a meal, some are blessed and others judged. And we wrote about that. I'll mention that at the end of the sermon. And there's some articles you can read about it. So there's an eschatological meal and Therefore, at the Lord's Supper, remember the original, Judas was judged in Luke 22. Others were put to the test and found truly believers in the Lord. So let me cite Dr. Gardner on this. However, the Lord's Supper, he says, has a strong eschatological aspect. The verb testing, dokimazo, has itself already been used in 313. We talked about that before. Let me go down to the end of this citation. 
once again, one group was acting in an elitist manner to the extent that the elite, in this case wealthy, were drunk while others went away hungry and suffered humiliation. Uh, Gardner says again, status-seeking by some has resulted in shame, kataiskuno for others, shame. Now, in the context that we've been studying in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2, we remember that the first century, both in the Roman Empire and in Judaism, there existed this honor-shame culture. And the only reason anyone has ever known Christ, had forgiveness of sins, been part of the family of God, was because, by God's grace, they, be Jew or Gentile, believed on a crucified Jewish Messiah. What's the issue with a a crucified Jewish Messiah? Everybody's offended. Church history doesn't reveal this as much as the first century does. Because Christendom takes what's shameful to them and makes it, oh, it's very honorable now to have a gold cross or to take an oath of poverty or whatever. But we need to understand the author's intent. So this is exactly what's at stake here in the Lord's Supper. Let's go to the next slide, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty to 22a. So Paul says, there's a problem here. You're shaming people that God paid a price for. And the real honor shame will be revealed at the end. But we need to understand the terms now so we won't be shamed then. Let me read this. Therefore, when you meet together, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? For in your eating, to the Corinthians, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Now, this is irony. And this, uh, the Greek here, depnon, is a supper. And I'll just do it now. We wrote an article about this in 2013, issue number 126. There's 20 available. However many people can't find one of these at the back table, we'll make more for next week. The point of this is this. The layout of the Roman home in Corinth, the wealthy home, was such that there was this triclinium. And the seating arrangement was such that the favored group, let me just read Dr. Thistleton on this, from initial remonstration, meaning protest about, Paul moves to the point that if the dining situation divides participants in the Lord's Supper into a favored triclinium group of first-class guests and hangers on in the atrium. This is not the Lord's Supper at all, but a meal in a private house. So the triclinium would be like first-class on the deck of the boat. I've watched Titanic. My wife compelled me. Three hours, I know what happens. The boat sinks. 200 million, I, don't, so I finally watched it half and half, one part, one day, one the next, but that was the world they lived in. 
steerage first class. And the boat did go down and people were playing and so on. But does that sort of thing belong in any gathering of God's people? That's my point. No, that's Paul's point. There's no first class in the kingdom of God until later when God decides rewards and roles. And at that point, the redeemed will have glorified bodies. So the Lord's Supper is based on a relationship with Jesus Christ, not status in the eyes of the world or even of a certain subset of what's called Christian in a smaller place, like in Corinth. And that issue is very clear. I bought the slides for 1 Corinthians from BiblePlaces.com. Next Sunday, in Sunday school, I will have a slide that we'll see when we study Acts 19.1, and we'll see visually what that looked like. And I want you to know I paid $49, but I got a lot of slides. And I hope it helps us see this. It really helps. And it's been misunderstood. It's been misunderstood. Camp and Rosner say this, another commentary. By the way, they're cited on the text of that slide that I'll show. It seems that the social elite, they say, of the church, who would not have been constricted by work obligation, gathered and began their meal before the arrival of the poor members and of the church, would not have had such flexibility. And I'll skip a little bit. Even Also, even at a large Roman home in Corinth, would not have room for only some people. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Maybe nine at the, in their first class. So proximity to the host was a place of status. Place of status. In Luke 22, they're picking out seats later, if you read through all of Luke 22. What kind of status do we know about in the kingdom of God, in the church, in Christ? There are those who are redeemed and added to the body of Christ, and we have roles. We don't always do them as well as we wish, but everyone is called by God called to serve the Lord and trust him. So let's go on here. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty two b So we have a supper. The world despises, is the headline here. Let me read that. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty two b Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Paul ironically and rhetorically asks, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? He answers his own rhetorical question. I will not praise you. So the word for despise, katafroneo, would mean in that context to hold in contempt. Who are you? Why are you here? What is this all about? Who invited you to this table? And the word kataskuno is to humiliate. It's an intensive. And so let me make a statement that I wrote in my notes here. Status in an honor-shame culture takes many forms. 
It had to do with, in this case, with wealth. In other case, cases, it took the form of knowledge, piety, gifting, many other matters. This is seen in the following three chapters. Think about this. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, all suffer with it. One member is honored, all are honored. That's how it's supposed to be. And then in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. But what happened in chapter 12? The gifts. One member says, I have no need of you. What about chapter 13, the love chapter? We need to have agape love for all whom the Lord has received. Chapter 14, they abuse spiritual gifts in the congregation, but they should be doing all things for edification of each member. From chapter 1, as we go forward, the issue remains the same. Please learn the Bible. It is so powerful. Somehow we have to put ourselves in the higher group, whoever we are. I'm a Paul, I'm Apollos, or schisms. This has just happened throughout church history. Now it's even more intense because we have 2,000 years of ways you can gain status. Oh, I see, some thought, the wealthy are bad, so therefore I'm going to take an oath of poverty. Have you heard of that? I want to prove that I'm not like that. I'll take an oath of poverty. So the poor Christians are in some other place, and they're saying to each other, we're the good Christians. Look at the rich ones out there. And by reversing it, they think they're safe. No. The only reason anyone has ever known Christ and had forgiveness of sins is by faith through grace and trusting in him alone. Who has what role or what calling in the body of Christ is God's business, and it's ours to love and receive one another and serve him as he sees fit. We don't know how it will all work out in the kingdom, and we can't control that, but we can serve by his grace. Let's go to verse 23. Commonly, we call this being the words of institution. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. For Paul says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. I really uh, spent long hours really studying this carefully because you can't say, well, church history really led astray in many different ways, which it did, without having really studied the passage and make sure we can understand it. What is in Scripture is binding and authoritative. Church history is full of some good things, many bad things. But God cannot lie, and this is what Scripture says. Paul said, I received and delivered. It's been pointed out by many that receiving Delivering meant this is authoritative revelation from Christ, from his apostles, and it's binding on the church. Received, delivered to you, and then he said the night the Lord was betrayed. That, obviously, is the Last Supper. 
Now he received and delivered paradidomi, the institution of the Lord's Supper. But the word betrayed is interesting as well. And betrayed, if you go back to Luke 22, 22, it's paradidomi, and it's in the present passive indicative, meaning this is the way it is. So the Lord received the truth. The betrayer, Judas, handed over Jesus to the Roman authorities. So there may be irony there. That's my reading. I think there is. In fact, why don't we turn there? Turn in your Bibles to Luke 22, 21 through 24. And I think you'll see the irony here. Luke 22, 21 through 24. This is about the betrayal. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. Luke twenty-two twenty-two. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Paradidomi. Verse 23. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who is going to do this thing. Now look at that right there. Keep that in your mind. They weren't sure who would do it. Who would do that? But if you're reading Luke 22, you know that Satan already had a hold of Judas. And you can read it in context. So they're wondering about, wondering about that. But look at verse 24. Here's the irony. Look at verse 24, Luke 22, 24. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, why did Luke put that there? Well, I don't want to betray, but I'm the greatest. Now, how do we know who the greatest is? That's what church history for 2,000 years is about. It may be I'm more pious. It may be I'm rich. It may be I'm poor. Maybe I can do better miracles. Maybe I can be the great apostles and prophets that are going to defeat Antichrist because we're better than everybody. I mean, all these things, well, we're the real pious one. We're the real church of God because we baptize by a certain formula. We're this and we're that. I can't erase that, and it's part of church history, but God's people bought by the blood are part of the family of God even if they don't know each other. We're finding it out now as we hear around the world from people who love to hear the truth and to learn what God said. So here, they want to know who's the greatest. But what we should know is are we part of the family of God, how and why? That's eternal. Betrayed, Luke twenty-two twenty-two. Paradidomi, given over or handed over. The Lord gave to Paul through the apostles, he being one of them, that'll be in 1 Corinthians 15, 
he handed over the Lord's Supper to those who trust Christ. Judas handed over Jesus to the civil authorities and the Jewish authorities went along with it as well. I think that's irony. Let's go to verse 24. And when he had given thanks, keep that in your mind, we're going to explain that. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We've mentioned that before, and there's a lot of theological significance here. It's so important to know what that is. Let me cite Luke twenty-two nineteen, And when he had taken some of the bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do, it's imperative, this remembrance of me. So there's the same wording. Jesus instituted the supper where we remember the price that was paid for the salvation of any who are trusting him alone. And it's an imperative, do this. Notice it says he had given thanks. And that's where the word you've probably heard, eucharisteo, eucharist. It can be a noun or verb, depending on the context. He'd given thanks, eucharisteo. And this is also misunderstood because church history, in many people's mind, or church tradition, determines the meaning, and it drowns out what we could learn if we just look directly at the text. The meaning in church history is ordinary bread. Now, this was a Passover, so it would have been unleavened. That's not the point, although it's an important point. I'll talk about that with the gospel that the bread turns into something different if the right person says the right words over it. And that's not the point. And that can be proven. Eucharistio isn't turning bread into something it isn't. And it's not blessing food. It's blessing the giver of food. Blessed be thou, O God, who has given us. That's something we talked about in Ephesians chapter 1, 3, through the whole section, I think, 14. The barakah would be what it's called in the Old Testament. Blessing the giver. Blessed be God. I'll cite some passages about that. So we bless God the giver. We thank God that he provided food. Maybe we're not used to that. In our culture here, because at least most of my lifetime, food was the one thing we didn't lack. But now we occasionally lack things. And uh, what was it we couldn't get the other day? Oh, um, chow mein noodles. I won't tell you where they are because then everybody will go there. Nobody will have them. But it's, the idea is that whatever we have is a gift from God. We talked about that last week. Given thanks is in the same heiress active participle in the Gospels as it is here. So we give thanks to God, and we're doing this in remembrance of what Christ did for all who trust him once for all. Once for all. So this is a meal remembering, and this is a meal a proclamation, 
And this is a meal of anticipation of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And church history is pretty much drowned out the real message. I'll cite Kiampa and Rosner. In this context, the Passover of the Passover, the Thanksgiving or blessing would have also recognized, they say, God's goodness and the redemption of his people, which was being commemorated. That's exactly right. That's my comment. Let me cite a few more things. It is notable, they say, that in the shadow of the death of, that the death Christ, excuse me, in shadow of the death, Christ still recognized God's faithful and generous provision for him and his disciples as he shared this last meal with them. Now remember, what happens? They're arguing who's the greatest. What happens in 1 Corinthians 1? Who's the greatest? Who has the best group? Who's of whom? Who has the best gifts? 1 Corinthians 12. Who has the best piety? 1 Corinthians 2. And we'll get to that. Who is rich? Who is poor? Who has status? Who is this? Who is that? No. Who is Christ? What did he do for us? And how can we ever be a part of the family of God through a crucified Jewish Messiah? And then we can understand what it means to serve one another. Back to Campa and Rosner. Paul had already alluded to the unleavened bread referred to Christ as our Passover lamb, who, was, who has been sacrificed, 5-7, suggesting that he understood Jesus' words at the Last Supper to mean he was fulfilling the role of the sacrificial lamb in the establishment of the new covenant. 1 Corinthians 5-7b says, For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. That was before we got here. You have to know 1 Corinthians 5, 7 to understand what is going on at the Last Supper, what's going on in the Lord's Supper. Now we remember, and then we also proclaim, going to verses 25 and 26. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That is so powerful and rich. What's the idea of this cup and the supper and the covenant? I'll, I'll cite some verses and we'll have some comments on that. 1 Corinthians ten sixteen. This is a reference to the previous chapter. When Eric preached on baptism, he referenced 1 Corinthians 10. Coming out of Egypt, the world left behind, buried, you come out and you go to Sinai, go through the wilderness. But here is a reference to that event. 1 Corinthians ten sixteen, 
Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Paul asks. Is not the bread we break a sharing in the body of Christ? We have to understand this today. Is the body of Christ the bread itself, the nature of the bread, the bread turning into something it wasn't, or is the body of Christ the people brought into relationship with God by faith? He's the head. This is not simply a human institution. It's Christ. We're part of Christ, not in a weird way, but in the way the Bible says we share in him. This doesn't deny the uniqueness of Christ, but the meaning of the Lord's Supper. The cup of blessing, and uh, the word there, the eulogia, we talked about that, eulogetos. Normally we say eulogy, we're talking about remembering someone's life, and this is more than that. It's remembering what Christ did for us. In the Old Testament, it would be the barakah, the blessing. So the cup of blessing, we bless is sharing in the blood of Christ. Now, somewhere in church history, the idea was, well, we got to understand that somehow whatever it is, it was wine, if it is some high holy person says something over it, now it's actual blood. The once for all goes away. The meaning of the suffer goes away. The once for all shed blood of Christ goes away. But now we have Greek substance theory that had nothing to do with what happened in the first century. I don't say this to disrespect anyone. I'm saying this so we can learn. The only thing that's going to help us is knowing what God said, in what context, why, and how it applies to us. And that, I believe, is what we are learning here. Let me read Dr. Thistleton, who's... uh, Commentary from the Greek is really amazing. It's really helpful. Let me quote this. The cup of blessing, he says, coheres precisely with the context of the Passover meal as the framework for the interpretation of the Lord's Supper. Continuing, but in other contexts, the phrase may also denote the cup over which grace is said at everyday meals in a Jewish household. Then he cites Mishnah, which is a document that would have been already there at the time of the Last Supper. Let me go back to that. Other sources provide ample evidence for the practice of using as a grace or thanksgiving at the end of the meal the formula, formula, listen, blessed be thou, O Lord God, King of the universe, who created the fruit of the vine. Blessed be thou, O Lord God, King of the universe. The creator, Eric Sunday School, laid out the fact that Jesus, the Trinity is biblical. Jesus' deity is affirmed. And so here, the Lord, the incarnate Lord, the creator, is blessing the King of the universe who created the fruit of the vine. We need divisions, hierarchies, high and holy, this or that, or everything else we can think of. Obscure the word with 
things that aren't necessary? Or do we need to know what God said? I'm going to make a statement. There's no required day, no required place, no required or restricted frequency. Notice he says, as often as you eat. Now, the Corinthian era was they turned this into an ordinary banquet of some sort, and let's eat and drink and have a big party, and the people that aren't important can sit out in the atrium. You know, the really important people are in the, tri- the triclinium, the honored place, and that was what was wrong. No required day, and people say there is, no. We can gather and remember what God did for us any place, anywhere, any day. That's why this church history is so strewn. I'm not saying ignore it. I've studied it as much as I can to understand how could we go back to Scripture alone and understand what God said by study. No required day or place, but we need to know why we can even be there. We'll see that. Remembrance on a excuse me on a mainnesis is used four times in the New Testament in this setting. Luke twenty two nineteen, one Corinthians eleven twenty four and twenty five, and then Hebrews three, where it says that the Old Testament sacrifices were a reminder of sins. Hebrews 10.3. Think about this. Are we reminding ourselves that we have to do it over and over and over and then we sin, do it over and then we sin, do it over and then we sin, and so on. And then if we didn't get it right, maybe right at the end and then we try to get it again. No, this is not a reminder over and over again that our sins are still there. We can't be forgiven. It's a reminder of what God did in Christ once for all. We're reminding ourselves why we're here, how our sins are forgiven, not who's better, not who has better status, not who's, and there's many ways to do this, but we've got to get it out of our hearts. I'll make a statement about this. We remember that Christ saved us through his blood and made us part of the family of God, we also look forward to his return. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we remind ourselves of how we can be part of the family. Once we're all shed of blood of Christ, turning to him alone, we're pro- excuse me, proclaiming the gospel, and we know that we look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Karangelo, proclaim, means to declare plainly, openly, or loud. So it's angelo, proclaim with a kata intensive. Boldly, strongly proclaiming. Let's go to verses 27 to 28. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So this takes up 
as I have on the slide here, the issue of verses 20 through 22. Talk about confused verses. These ones have really confused a lot of people because of misunderstanding. And ironically, the people that are the most concerned about their own status get scared away, thinking, well, maybe I better not, I don't think I'm good enough, I don't deserve this. And the ones who are causing the problems in Corinth, saying, great, big banquet, can't be me. Remember, who's the greatest? Judas was the one who betrayed. Let me cite Camp and Rosner. The reference to participating in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, they say, must be understood in the light of the context where the Corinthians were practicing the supper in a way that they humiliated others and the manner they took of, of the supper is what was wrong. So they demean, humiliate, disrespect other members of the body of Christ, Christ's community. To worship Christ, they say, these scholars, in a way that shows disrespect to those who have been united with the Lord and have become one with him in spirit, 617, and will share and participate in his body and blood, 1016, is not to sin just against them, but against the covenant reaffirmed in the meal, against the Lord of the meal and those brothers and sisters in Christ. The blood of the covenant is the price that Christ paid once for all, that any of us have hope and confidence to be part of the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's the blood of the covenant. And the way this is abused in many situations. When I was a new Christian, went to a little Pentecostal church in Ames, Iowa, where I was studying chemical engineering and great preacher. He was at our wedding, Reverend Hilton Griswold, and talked about the blood of the covenant coming to Christ. But in some cases, there were people that that just despised anybody that didn't do things their way. There were people who said, well, okay, if you're going to be the pastor, then I won't have anything to do with this church. You're not good enough. I control who's in the church. We can't do that. In other cases, you have the high holy hierarchy. Christ didn't establish any such thing. How is it that I could be part of this? Only by the blood of Jesus. Thistleton says this. The syntax, therefore, implies not a sacrilege against the elements of the Lord's Supper, but answerability or being held accountable for the sin against Christ of claiming identification with him while using the celebration of the meal as an occasion for social enjoyment or status enhancement without regard to what sharing in the Lord's Supper proclaims. Examine, dokimazo, it's imperative in the Greek. How are we going to do that? 
in my case, I need to think, am I any more important than anybody else that God has ever saved through the blood of Jesus? Do I have some gift that others wish they had but don't? Am I less sinful, more necessary? It's the grace of God. Remember where Paul said that he's a chief of sinners? Remember how he hated Christ in the gospel and wanted to kill Christians? That is what we need to remember, that only God would save such a wretched sinner to same with me. We don't have to judge one another. We need to proclaim how we can be forgiven of sins, not through the act of eating and drinking, not through elements turned into something else by some magical means. How much of the study of church history? Well, the presence is in around, I think Luther said, or someone said, well, this is the way it is. The other ones, well, there's a transubstantiation. Lay that aside. I don't want to insult anyone, but I want us to see the gospel. Go back to what actually happened. We remember the Lord's death. Does it have to be what kind of juice is it? Is it if it doesn't have alcohol, is it not really effective? Or does it have to be a certain kind of bread? Or no, it has to be a remembrance of the Lord's death. It's not what the bread is. It's what God did for us. The dokimazo means. Why am I here? Why am I here? What can take away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Verse 29 and 30. For he who eats and drinks and drinks, excuse me, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. There is the kicker for many people. I'll stop right there. They're assuming that it means the elements. Okay? If, if you don't have the right doctrine, then you're in trouble. Well, the body that's being discussed here is how we're part of the body of Christ. We're not claiming worthiness. We're not claiming, well, that's not me. God's lucky I came. That would be a very scary thing to think. And the irony in throughout church history is that the ones who care the most about what God's done, why he did it, why they need him are the ones who get scared away from the table. The table won't be defiled by the sinner. The sinner is in danger of rejecting others whom God has put in his family and betraying the Lord in that manner, not getting it wrong about what the elements are about. So Paul's a prophet. Let me read on. For this reason, Paul says, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Now, let me cite that. I'm not claiming that we know who the worst sinners are because at what age someone died and when and how. 
We can't know that. So let me quote Dr. Fee on this, whose commentary helped me understand this in the late 1980s. He says this, quote, how many people were in the Corinthian community at this time and how many of them had fallen ill to this plague to cause Paul to say, many of you, he questions. In many case, in any case, Paul is not saying that sickness among believers is to be viewed as present judgment, nor that such sickness is necessarily related to an abuse of the supper. Rather, he says, he has at this point prophetically judged this to be so. In other words, this isn't good to reject anyone whom the Lord received. We don't know why things happen the way they do, but we know that those who trust Jesus Christ, whose sins are forgiven, are looking for the Lord, they love one another, and they'll participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a lot of confusion about this. Some have said to me, well, you need to say certain things, and then things won't happen to you. Some said, plead the blood over whatever. Or if you speak in tongues, then the tornado will go this way instead of that way. And the confusion is amazing. The fact is, no, we don't control history. God does. We don't control the tornado where it hits. Jesus addressed this in Luke 13. Do you think that those upon whom the tower fell are worse sinners than all those? No. Do you think those whose blood was mingled with the sacrifices are worse sinners than everybody else in Galilee? He said, no, I, I tell you, Jesus said this, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. We cannot determine who the good Christians are based on they got an accident, the tower fell on them, they were martyred, they died at a younger age of some disease that's rare. No matter what happens, what matters is we know Christ. I, I had a, a pastoral theology teacher in Bible college, and he said, to hear some of the funerals we have amongst believers and the hopelessness and the lament and the sorrow. And the, he said, where's the assurance of the forgiveness of sins? He said, pastors have been dangling people. This was Reverend Snow, I think, over the pit for years and years. If you're not good enough, God's going to get you. You're going to die. And where's assurance if we can't trust the blood of Jesus? That was from a Pentecostal teacher in the early 1970s. Where do you get assurance? Is it through the blood of Jesus or through some special status that the church can give you? This has a saving intent. 1 Corinthians 11, 32, and 33. Doctor, let me read this before I cite someone. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together, when you come together, wait for one another. Now, that's amazing, that word wait. 
I'll, I'll point that out in our application. Now, this has a saving intent, not a damning intent. Judas was the one in Luke 22 that Satan had already entered early in Luke 22. But they, they're arguing, who's the greatest? It can't be me. It can't be me. Here's something that will help with assurance. Judas was there. Peter was there. Judas went out, betrayed the Lord. Peter, in a sense, did. But he was restored. And we are to be saved, not judged. And if we humble ourselves, every last one of us, and say, God, I don't deserve to be here. The Judases don't feel bad. I've talked to people who call and say, I think I'm an apostate. I think God won't forgive my sins. I've talked to apostates. They tell me they are apostates. One pastor said, don't bother me. I'm happier being an atheist. I had an apostate for a teacher. He's happier being an atheist now that he left. Apostates aren't worried about their status. They're glad not to have religion. But the Peters of the world, when they see what happened, that they, what they did, they weep bitterly. Dear Lord, forgive me. We get calls and letters. I don't know if God will take me. I don't think I'm good enough. I don't think it's going to happen. I must have committed the unpardonable sin. I must have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. One way is to look at the objective. Jesus Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Wait, ek dekomai. Dekomai means to welcome. And wait here means wait for. And, and let me just cite from a, a theologian fee. Since there is no sure evidence that the verb he used earlier means to eat beforehand, he says it seems Paul likely here is referring to the wealthy, uh, urging the wealthy to demonstrate normal Christian hospitality. They welcome Decamai. I love that word, and it, we see it in Luke Acts all the time. Welcome, receive one another when they come together. Here's my statement. This shows that the overall theme of correcting schisms, divisions, spiritual or social hierarchies, and other false judgments cannot be the basis of fellowship in the body of Christ. The offense of the cross, my statement, is enough. The offense of the cross is enough. That's God's statement. Earlier, we can prophesy if we tell the truth of what Scripture says, and it's correct. Continuing, this truth is even more obscured by the many developments of church history. Scripture alone is a true doctrine. And as soon as some insight or some way we can think of, I'm better than other people, a new group starts in church history. We have a better baptismal formula. We know something you don't know. We have a better hierarchy. We have a better structure. We know this. We know that. It's gone on. 
How can we come back to just what we can know? God has saved us. He's welcomed us. Wouldn't it be horrible if God welcomed someone who agreed to the terms, repented, turned to Christ, believed the gospel, confessed Christ as Lord and Savior, and asked God to change them to to walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord only by grace? And someone says, no, get out of here. We don't like you. We have no part here. We can't do that. We don't know. We can't do it. One app. I'm carefully watching the time here. Our true hope is in what God has done once for all. What God has done once for all. Let's go to the last slide. Hebrews 9.28, Isaiah 53.11b. Here's Hebrews 9.28. This one blew me away when I looked it up in the Greek because there's even one more prefix on decomai. Hebrews 9.28, so Christ also having been offered once, that's hapox means once for all, to bear the sins of the many, many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Now, I looked up that word await. I hope it strikes you as powerfully as it did to me when I was studying this. Now, the previous word, decomai, which typically means welcome, ek decomai, here the author of Hebrews added one more prefix. A lot of these prefixes are intensives. Await is op, opek decomai. It's a longer word. And so the translator here says eagerly await. Eagerly await. Who welcomed Jesus? Sinners, who dined with sinners, Jesus, who rejected Jesus, the Sadducees who had political power, the Pharisees who were more pious. Many other people had something. Read Luke. Are you eagerly awaiting the Savior? Is the situation in this world good enough that if you can gain what you want here, who needs a Savior? Eagerly await. Eagerly await. Now, there's a reference here to the gospel, and that's in Isaiah 53, 11b, and then I'll read also verse 12. Isaiah 53, 11b, and verse 12. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Notice, many, the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Verse 12, therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death. This is Messiah. And was numbered with the transgressions, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Remember, who is interceding for us? Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. We're his people. He cares about us. Today, turn to Jesus Christ, the sinless Savior, 
the creator, the virgin-born son of God, the sinless one, the one who predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, and who shed blood for the remission of sins. That's where our justification is. We believe on him. He was raised from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He makes intercession for us. He interceded for the transgressors. There's no sinless one. There's no super pious one. There's those who know Christ. Today, turn away from serving status, piety, honor. I'm better. I'm worse. Whatever we think we can be, turn only to Christ. The only thing that will provide forgiveness of sins is the blood of Jesus Christ. Trust in him. Trust in him today and believe upon him for forgiveness. And you're immediately qualified to be that one who comes to the Lord's table without putting oneself under judgment because we're all part of the body of Christ.